We all have bucket lists. As a lifelong sports fan, mine is full of tons of different sporting events and venues, from the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and beyond. However, my greatest bucket list item is something I want to share with the world and fans like me. What if you could attend a home college football game for all 130 and counting FBS programs? Seems crazy, right? Join me, your host, Bobby Wilson, as I take you along for the ride to see all the FBS venues and more. This is the TNT College Football Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the very next episode of the TNT College Football Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Wilson. Glad to be coming to you today on a beautiful Saturday morning. I am joined today by uh, Michael Waxman, who who a lot of you may know following him on Twitter. But, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on on a uh, Saturday. It, it feels like it, uh, like it should be a college football Saturday. I know we're getting close to it, so... Uh... Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, feel free to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, attended Ohio State for a while. Um, actually grew up liking the Buckeyes because my parents both uh, went to Ohio State, and that's where they met. And I grew up in the university area. We moved around a lot from different apartments than houses, but we almost always lived in the university area. So um, the last house we lived in was probably about a seven-minute walk to the horseshoe. So that was always fun uh, being around it. And then I kind of knew when I was about 10 or 11 years old that I wanted to be a sports writer. And so I set about doing that and ended up getting a job fairly quickly out of college um, working at a weekly uh, fan publication that covered Ohio State. So it's like I was I figured, okay, can there be anything better than this? And I did that from the time I was about 23 to about 40, 40, 41. So I did that for almost 20 years. That's awesome. And to, to grow up in an environment like that around such a prestigious institution and like one of the blue blood college football programs that just has to be fun well it is and 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 people often mistake columbus for being a college town it really isn't it's a city with a college in it i'm sure some of the other i mean state college is a college town college station is a college town and not just because they have college in their title obviously but even like tuscaloosa but columbus is more of a city that happens to have a big college. And anymore, Columbus is actually more of a city. But in the 60s and 70s, it did have kind of a collegiate vibe because it wasn't quite as large Mm -hmm. as it is now. I think people are surprised when you tell them it's the 13th most populated city in the United States. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it is a lot of fun. And when it is going well, there's not a whole lot of escape from it. For the few people who don't follow Ohio State or root for another team, there's not a lot of escaping it when it's going well. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, I, I it's it's funny that we that we're talking about this because I grew up a Michigan fan. I grew up going to a ton of Michigan games because of my father and his connections with within the university and everything. So, I I, I always love talking about the rivalry just because I don't have a I don't have a hatred for Ohio State at all. And maybe that's because I didn't go to Michigan and I didn't play at Michigan and everything. But I. I think it's just a really healthy rivalry that's just a huge thing for college sports in general. Yeah, it is. Um, I, 
I, I think hate is a little bit strong. Like, I'm not one of these people who, and, and they do it the week of the game, who blocks out the M mm-hmm. or won't say Michigan or only calls them the, the team up north. Part of me says that's kind of juvenile, but I certainly understand that that is part of the passion. So, so for folks who want to do that, that's fine. Um, I do think uh, now when Michigan has misfortune, like the, the, the funny punt play against Michigan state a couple years ago. Oh yeah. I laughed. I was falling <laughs> on the floor saying that's a new way to lose a game. Right. So when they lose, it doesn't bother me, but I don't go out of my way to hope bad things happen to the program. So it, it, it is more of a, of a rivalry thing for me. And, um, and I agree when those two teams in the seventies were always playing for the Rose bowl and sometimes playing for number one, it, it didn't get any bigger than that. And that was when it was grounded out, uh, Woody and Bo, three yards in a cloud of dust, all that fun stuff. And you go back and look at the games now, they look like they're kind of boring just based on the football that's played these days. But there was a physicality and just really a grit and a determination that you don't see as much now. And part of me says – I really like that, but part of me says, okay, having to sit through this 11 or 12 weeks in a row would probably kind of be a little bit mind-numbing. Right, right. I agree. I mean, I, I, you you obviously grew up going to Ohio State games, being in that environment and everything. I've only been to Columbus myself, I think, two or three times. So what's a, what's a game experience like at Ohio State and at the Horseshoe? Um, as far as game experience, I will actually say mo- more of my game experiences have been covering the team rather than attending games. Well, I probably attended as a fan, maybe 2025, 20, but I think I covered over, over a hundred or 150. So, um, so game day for me can be different things. As a fan, I used to walk down by myself. My mom was, went back to school and was a student. So she got a student pass. They used to just punch a hole, like, okay, for each game, you're here, you're here, you're here. And I would just take her pass and they didn't make you show an ID. I would walk down to the stadium. I'd go to the games by myself, sitting up in C deck. And I just had a good time. I was like 10 or 11 years old. And you you couldn't do that nowadays. You couldn't have a 10 or 11 year old (laughs) walk from their house down to the stadium and heaven forbid they're sitting by themselves. But Back then, you could do that, and I didn't really, at that age, take much notice of, like, the tailgating and the pregame festivities. I did try to pay a little bit more attention to that as I got older and as I covered the games because I said, okay, how does this tailgating stack up to when we go on the road to Penn State or to Michigan State or to Michigan? And I don't know that the tailgate scene at Ohio State is – off the hook or anything. It's certainly not like what you'd find in the SEC. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a, a healthy group. There are people who bring their RVs in like Wednesday, Thursday, so that they wow. can <laughs> get a prime parking space for the Saturday game. I'm thinking, you got nothing else to do for 48 hours that you're you're parking your RV here and setting up already. So so there is some devotion. Um, the, the one thing that is great that people need to see if they're going to go to a game is the Skull Session, which is when the marching band kind of does its rehearsal for what it's going to do during the game at halftime. You can go into the basketball arena, which was St. John Arena, and just kind of sit in the bleachers, and they will play their songs. They won't march because it's a confined space, but they will play their 
selections and a player will speak and a coach will speak and it's designed to kind of get the fans lathered up before they get over the stadium that's actually very cool that's awesome i i didn't actually know that that was that that was a thing yeah it's it i mean every school has has something um i mean ohio state certainly as far as entrances now You've got Clemson touching Howard's Rock. You've got Virginia Tech with the inner Sandman. You've got a lot of great entrances. I mean, Ohio State has some smoke, and they might play a song. But to me, it's the moments before the game when you can kind of go around and see, like the spell session. There is on one side of the of Ohio Stadium, there's a Buckeye Grove where they've planted trees for every All-American that the program has had. It kind of rings, um, I think it is the south end the southeastern side of the stadium, there's a Buckeye Grove that has all of the All-Americans. So they plant a tree and they put a plaque and you can learn about um, some of the guys who are All-Americans. And certainly the, the current people, most fans will know, but the guys in the 40s and the mm-hmm. 30s, it's cool to kind of read up on that and to kind of see how they were really the first link in the chain to really make Ohio State great because the Buckeyes didn't really win their first national title until 1942. And then since then, they've obviously been one of the premier programs. Absolutely. I mean, just the the track record they've had since then speaks for itself. That it does. And, and it, it, it's a lot better than, than growing up in, I mean, for example, um, and I don't want to pile on any fan bases, but growing up in Lawrence, Kansas for football, mm-hmm. not basketball, for football or Vanderbilt. I mean, you, you've got places where – I'm sure that the games, going to the games and seeing your family and seeing your friends is great, but sitting through the product sometimes is not probably the, the, the best use of your Saturday afternoon. So, so it's nice when you've got a product that people will come out and see and then it delivers on the field. Absolutely. And, and it makes all the difference, that's for sure. Yes. So you became a beat writer, of course, for Ohio State and and I would love to hear what some of your favorite moments or players, or teams and games, like what were some of the things that really stood out for you? Um, some of my favorite moments, um, the top two would probably be uh, being in Tempe the night that they beat Miami went for the national championship when no one thought that Ohio State had a chance. I think right. the odds makers made Miami like maybe a 10 or 11 point favorite. And that, I mean, that was a team – you look at that roster, and you can understand why. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had Willis McGahee. They had Sean Taylor. They had just guys who became legendary college players who went on to become real studs in the NFL. And Ohio State has Craig Krenzel at quarterback, who's a workmanlike guy, just a blue-collar offensive line. It was that whole Miami and Florida speed versus sort of the Midwest um, physical and I think most people thought that the speed was going to win. And that just turned out not only to be a great feeling with the national championship, but that's one of, that's probably in person the best game I've ever seen. Now, it's probably second in terms of the USC Texas Rose Bowl in terms of overall games. But games I've witnessed in person, that's probably the, the best one. And then. The 1996 Rose Bowl, because John Cooper had been under such heat to deliver, um, that I guess I guess if there was one kind of down period in Ohio State since I have been alive and following the team, that would be it. But really, if you look at Cooper's record from the time he started getting it going about 93 
he really did have some. I mean, he, they won 10, 11 games. They just couldn't beat Michigan. Mm-hmm. Or the year that they beat Michigan, they lost to Michigan State because a punt bounced off of one of their guys, and Michigan State recovered it and went down for a game-winning score. So it seemed that Cooper was always snake bit. So when they went to the Rose Bowl to play Arizona State and Jake the Snake Plummer, um, the, the fact that they won that and they won it late – in a dramatic fashion, that was a great game too. And that also served as great because at the time, my wife was not my wife. She was my, just my girlfriend, but she was sitting in the stands with my mom. So they got to kind of experience it as well. So, so those would probably be the two that were at the top. There are a couple of others going to Notre Dame to see um, Ohio State play there in the rematch from 1995. Just seeing Eddie George the year that he won the Heisman, he's actually my favorite all-time player at Ohio State. Watching Orlando Pace do his thing. Um, Archie Griffin really was a little bit before my – I mean, just the year I went to my first game was 76, and Arch was pretty much done. So, um, But, I mean, those are some of them. Some of the great games that were just, I guess, down-to-the-wire games. I mean, Michigan – I actually enjoy going back and looking at some of those games, even though they were losses for Ohio State, because they a lot of them were fairly close competitive games. You just said, man, they found new ways to lose. So, um, And just a lot of really good players to, to interview and the coaches. I mean, say what you will about John Cooper from what he accomplished on the field. He might have been the best coach to interview just because he had that Southern – charm he was from tennessee he had that down home he had sayings that we didn't know what they meant half the time but we said okay they're funny and they must mean something so if you could have combined trestle's winning with cooper's personality you would have the perfect coach (laughs) that's awesome i i think from a player's perspective i mean i agree with you i i always loved eddie george and just the way he played and ran and just i've always loved him and, well, I mean, and, and you remember that team had him and Terry Glenn and Ricky Dudley and Bobby Hoying. I mean, just that was a loaded team. And that's probably mm-hmm. the biggest disappointment that that bunch didn't win the national title, because that was probably from 95 to 98. It could be said that there were three of those four years that Ohio State probably had the most talented team in college football. And they didn't win the national title any of those years. After beating Arizona State in the Rose Bowl, they finished number two, which was the highest that they finished. I think it's crazy too how you could have a ten or eleven win season and it's almost considered a failure. But that's just uh, the type of greatness that Ohio State has created. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, part of me says, you know what? And 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 this is this was a big thing I encountered when I was writing that they could lose to a good team like some of those Illinois teams that had Simeon mm-hmm, Rice right. and Kevin Hardy and some of those teams that were in that era that went to the Rose Bowl, losing to them was not a disgrace, but they'd lose, and people will call up, why is Ohio State losing to Illinois? Well, have you not seen that Illinois is good this year? Now, when they're losing to, like, Indiana or Purdue or teams that they shouldn't really be losing to no matter how good they are, okay, I understand fans being upset, but you're right. There are people who, and, and I never understood this mentality, They'd rather go two and eight but beat Michigan than to go like eight and two and have like maybe a Rose Bowl berth 
but lose to Michigan. I was like, you know what? I want the bigger achievement for the year. I want to do better in a season than just kind of, well, I beat my rival, so everything's okay. I, I've never, I've never quite understood that mentality. And I think that that kind of, there are certain fans. I mean, certainly you, I mean, I'm sure it goes on with, with Alabama, Auburn and USC and Notre Dame. And I'm sure that on every side of the, of a great rivalry, you'll have people, you know what, as long as we beat them, it kind of soothes the wound of us winning one game this year. Maybe. (laughs) I agree with you. I've, I've always kind of questioned that too, for different fan bases. It just, it just has always kind of perplexed me that there's that thought process. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to transition now to, uh, now you cover things from more of a national perspective with your, with, uh, with your podcast and the different things that you do. Um, let's discuss that a little bit. Like what, what excites you from that standpoint now? Um, I like the fact really, um, probably started, uh, 2017, 2018, um, I was I would watch Ohio State games like in the mid two thousands after being kind of like a newlywed and having the kids. Saturdays a lot of the time you'd be taking them to soccer or you'd be taking them swimming. So you weren't as into the games as maybe you wanted to be. And there were even and and, and don't tell anyone this, I even missed a couple of Ohio State games. So <laughs> let's let's not let that secret out. But um <laughs> But as they became older and they had their own friends and they might go get a job and they might not really be, they might not need mom and dad as much for things. I said, okay, I need something to do on the weekend. And so I said, let me dive back into college football. And so initially it was just watching the Buckeyes again. And that's like, you know what? There are a lot of other great teams out here. Let me get real familiar with some of these others. And of course you gravitate towards the Alabamas and the Notre Dames and the USC's because they're the brands and the teams that are on TV every week. Well, in 2017 or 2018, um, our cable provider ended up getting um, all of, basically all of the regional networks. So we, at one point we had the PAC 12 network, we had the SEC, we had the, the ACC. And it's like, I can watch all these other teams from around the country and not really have to attend the games. And so one Saturday, I just kind of flipped around to see how many games I could see parts of. And it's like, you know what? This is kind of fun. And so that's kind of what I do now on Saturdays. I will wake up early. um, I'll go for a walk in the neighborhood, usually with a football in in my arms. So if any of my neighbors see me, they think I'm just crazy. It's like, what's this guy doing? Um, And then get my food ready, watch the pregame shows. And then from noon to 2 a.m., my wife knows she's either going to go do shopping or maybe just watch TV in our room or go go visit some of her girlfriends or whatever. I am pretty much left alone from noon to 2 a.m. And I'll watch the Pac-12 games too. And I do actually have a notebook in front of me and I take not copious notes on every game, but if there's a player or a team that I really have not studied up on a whole lot or a player kind of breaks out, I'll kind of write them down and kind of see, okay, file this away for later. So it's not just sitting on the couch, eating my pretzels and drinking my beer and just kind of sitting there. I am actually sort of paying attention and doing work so that I can update, so so I can be ready for the podcast, put stuff on my Twitter account and all that other stuff. And 
my Twitter account has, has really blown up. And I haven't done a whole lot of marketing and publicity. When I started this, I told my wife, I said, if I get to 100 followers, I will be surprised because there were so many national college football accounts out there. And I just went over 10,300 like last week. So it's like, okay, this has gone a little bit uh, better than I thought it would. That's awesome. I, I can kind of speak to that too, but like going through this process as well, like I just went over a thousand followers and I'm like, I'm blown away by this. Like, I can't believe it. And it, it kind of the same situation you're in where when I first started this, I'm like, it's going to be fun. It's going to be something I like to do and, and everything. But now that it's actually turned into something, it's, it's really cool. Well, yeah, and part of me says, why do people want to listen to what I have to say? Right. And some of it is that, but some of it is they just want to have a foil, like to kind of be confrontational with. When you put an opinion out there, they're going to, nine times out of ten, they're going to question it. They're going to say, well, you don't know anything. But, and, and it's usually in good fun. Um, I, don't, I don't block people. I try not to get snarky with them if I can help it. Occasionally, it's difficult to do. Right. But... I generally will either just ignore it or say, okay, that was, that was cool. Um, but I just figure I love the game and I, I study the game and I think that I have some knowledge of it. So I'll put my picks out there. Do I expect them to be right all the time? Heck no. If they're right 50, 60% of the time, I'm thrilled. So, and, and, and the, the funny thing is people think that, if you, uh, th they will harp on the ones that you get wrong <laughs> rather right, than, right. well, you know what? I did have this kind of sleeper team here at number three. Yeah, but you had this one number six and they went five and seven. Okay, right. well, you're right. But why don't we harp on the good for a little bit? So so that's the good and bad of Twitter. But um, but yeah, it is, It's it, it gives me, it makes me feel like I'm accomplishing something watching these games rather than just, okay, turn the TV off at 2 a.m., going to bed. If I wasn't posting something on Twitter or, or writing stuff down for the podcast, I'd say, okay, I watched, I just watched 14 hours of football, but what did I get out of it? So, right. so I, I like to keep busy during the games. That's awesome. I love, I love to hear that. That's really cool. It, kind of going off of your, what you're talking about on Twitter, you recently released your top 25 for this upcoming season, your preseason yes. top 25. And, uh, let's discuss that a little bit. I, I I, I think there, it, it's it's pretty apparent to most people that it's Alabama and Ohio State one two whichever one you want to put it one and two is, right. that it could go either way, but the the rest of it's kind of it, it's just it's, it's there's kind of a logjam really. It, it is, and 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 I always preface my top twenty five release by saying two things. One, I am trying to do, and I think more of the magazines are doing this now. I'm trying to project how it's going to look at the end of the year. Back mm -hmm. in the day, um, when you'd get your Sporting News or your Street and Smith or whoever, they were just telling you who are the strongest teams going into the season. And that's all fine and good, but most of the time, it's the teams that were strongest at the end of last season. Unless they just lost all of their contributors, then maybe you knock them down. So I'm trying to forecast a little bit based on rosters and coaching changes and things of that nature. So I think it's a little bit more difficult, but I also, um, when I do this, I will be the first to admit, I like to 
think out of the box and, and, and put one, maybe two teams a little bit higher than people would think. I mean, are Georgia and Clemson great? And could they easily be numbers three and four? Sure they can. Mm -hmm. But to me, it doesn't take a whole lot of skill to pick Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson. Okay. Yeah. You look right. But was it really all that bold of a pick? So now I don't, be bold just to do it. If I really think that those teams that just look overwhelmingly better than everybody else, I'll put them there. But um, I just I, I come at it a little bit differently than than some other people do, and and that's why my picks outside of one and two will often look different. I actually bought early this year. I bought Aquan and I bought Lindy's because they came out within about a week of each other. Mm-hmm. And I just compared the top 10 box on their covers. Other than the order of teams from like 7 to 10, they were the exact same teams in the top 10. I said, how is that really like doing a whole lot of thinking? You're just kind of grouping, make, changing the, the numbers around a little bit. So, so that's kind of how I go into a top 25 is I'm forecasting for the year thinking, okay, this might be a weak conference, but this team might have a chance to run a table in a weak conference. And let me look for a team that might be a little bit on the outside of the thought process that people have and see if, if, see if, 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 they, can, if they can make it. So certainly one of the teams that I put in my top four this year fits that bill. Absolutely. I, I kind of had the same thought process too. I, I, I agree with you that it, it's very easy to sit there and say Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia, just because of like who they are and what they mean to the sport. But I also think it, it means it means something too for us to th- throw other names in there. Well, I, I, that's why I really liked last year. I mean, as much as it pained me to see Michigan in the playoff, it's like you know what? It's a new face. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati getting through as a, as a G five. I thought was outstanding. Absolutely. I mean, I certainly have a ton of respect for Luke Fickle, but I was actually rooting for Cincinnati at the beginning of the year because everyone said there's never going to be a little guy that makes the playoff after what happened to UCF in 2017. And I said, look, under the right circumstance, I think a G5 can make it. And you looked at Cincinnati's schedule last year. They played Indiana, which ended up being a crappy team, but they played Notre Dame and beat Notre Dame. And I'm thinking, okay, if they can stay undefeated, they can go. Mm-hmm. And they went, and it was nice to see. And no one had Cincinnati in the playoff. No one had Michigan in the playoff. So I think that it was a really it, – it, it, it was good for college football to have those new faces. And it showed. It's not always just the four or five blue bloods. You're probably getting two of them in, but you're not right. always going to get all four of them in. And that's why I like going year to year to year – you think you know what's going to happen, but you really don't know. Absolutely, and and I uh, last year I I said for my preseason top four going into the year I said it was Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and I did put Cincinnati in there. So I, just because of I wanted to throw somebody else new in there, so I, I was happy. I was like you, really, really excited to see them run the table and do what they were able to do. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think I had them eight or nine. I went back and looked, and I did have them in the top ten, but I'm thinking, okay, they'll probably lose the Notre Dame game, right? and that will keep them out. But then when they beat Notre Dame, I'm thinking, okay, there's nothing that's keeping this team out. Now, you look at the end of the year, that Oklahoma State-Baylor game, mm-hmm. had that gone the other way, the committee might have looked for a way to put a one-loss Big 12 team in over Cincinnati, but it didn't go that way, so... 
so Cincinnati earned their way in. So, so I like that. So, um, so yeah, so I have OSU and Alabama one and two, and then I have Utah number three. I love Utah based on how they played in the Rose Bowl against Ohio State. They were actually down some people on defense, mm-hmm. and they still put up a, a great fight. And then I really like North Carolina State this year. I'm one of these people who it's different in basketball. Everyone talks about experience in basketball. Well, you can't find teams that have many seniors in basketball. But right. in football, if you have not necessarily seniors, but experience – at a lot of crucial positions, I think you are in a good spot to make a big run. Now, the only thing I worry about is the years that NC State has been expected Mm -hmm. to be good, they've kind of fallen flat. But their schedule, other than going to Clemson, really is not that formidable. So if they can somehow go undefeated, they're they're definitely in. But even if they are 11-1, and If they happen to beat Clemson, but maybe lose, like, say, a close one to Wake Forest or somebody good, there's no reason NC State can't get in. So when I say bold, I'm not trying to, like, say, okay, I'm going to pick Syracuse. Or I'm going to pick, like, uh, Virginia or someone like that. I'm going to pick a team that that has a decent amount of experience, a good quarterback, and an experienced coach because you don't see a whole lot of first- and second-year coaches making the national championship and making the playoff. So, 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 so that's where that is. And, um, and then the rest of the top 25, I just, I will sometimes look for sleepers. I mean, like I like Houston this year because they have an experienced quarterback in Clayton Toon and their defense is pretty good. Um, I love BYU and Fresno state. I, I do. You don't see a whole lot of G five representation in a lot of people's polls because a lot of people have power rankings are their top 25 Mm -hmm. and power rankings do not usually benefit G five teams because they're not as strong. But again, I'm projecting out forward. So I'll put three or four G five teams in, in my rankings. And it's just, it's different. And it got a lot of debate. I got people saying, Hey, this is cool. You're a little bit different. I got people saying, you don't know anything because Georgia's going or Clemson's going or whoever's going. Right. So I, I, I like the debate, but as long as I could just stir the debate, that makes me happy because it means that, okay, people are paying attention to it. Right. Exactly. I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I've noticed you're, you're a big proponent of keeping the college football playoff at four teams and me myself, I go back and forth on it. I really do. I kind of waffle back and forth on it. So I, I'm probably a bad person to ask about this, but why is it that you feel the playoff should stay at four teams? Well, I, I really think that you can kind of group it into two camps. I think it all depends on what your perspective for what the postseason should be about. Back in the day, it was bowl games. Maybe you'd get to see a matchup you'd never see. Nebraska playing Alabama or Texas playing Michigan or, or games you just didn't see very much in the non-conference. Well, then there just became an over-proliferation of bowls. Mm-hmm. And some of them lost their meaning because six and six teams are playing against each other. Don't get me wrong. I watch them because I'm a nut. But on the meaningful scale, many of them have uh, really don't have much. I believe, and this is purely my perspective, I think the postseason – should be about excellence and rewarding excellence. And in that aspect, the more teams you put in, the more filler you can kind of get because you might get a two-loss or a three-loss team if they win their championship game. 
you might get them in. Now, they might be a 12 seed or an 11 seed, but they're in. And to me, they have not been one of the best teams all year long. That's the difference between football and the sport from your background, basketball. Right. March Madness is a great thing, but it doesn't always crown the best team. It's That's the most true. fun tournament you can find. But to me, the postseason for football is not about fun. It should be about excellence and rewarding teams that did what they were supposed to do. And in that end, you have eight, you have 12. You're putting more and more teams. I don't want to say mediocre, but I'm going to say less deserving into the, into the process. And the other thing is, is that um, I also, the one thing I will say, I don't love the selection process. It's not transparent. Mm-hmm. The committee change, seems to change their criteria every year or weigh certain other things heavier one year than the next. So you never really know what their line of thinking is. They just unveil that last ranking. It's like, oh, a team moved up or a team moved down, and you're supposed to take their word for it. So I don't like the selection process, but I still think that having the four is the way to do it. And frankly, I actually like the BCS because it at least had computers weighing in Mm -hmm. with humans. There really does not seem to be much of a – analytics or computer strength or anything in the in the selection process and while i don't think computers are the be-all end-all or analytics aren't the be-all end-all i think they can help tell you which teams have done what they're supposed to do and who's playing at a high level and who has achieved whereas the humans looking at it may just say well you know what this team lost three games but they lost three games by 10 points to team to teams that were good well that may be but maybe the computer has them at 15 because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. So if there could be a melding of the two um, formats for selection, I'd be a lot happier with the process. So, yeah, I've said from day one, I hate the process, but I like the format. I, I love hearing you say that about the the BCS and the computer analytics and everything because as a former coach myself, I, I, I do feel there's value in that analytical aspect. So I I agree wholeheartedly with you when it comes to meld meshing the two together. I think it would be great. Well, and even if you look back through through the ages of, of March Madness, sure you had great stories that Villanova team that beat Georgetown, mm-hmm. NC State coming out of nowhere. But does anyone really think during the course if anyone said who was the best team those years? Right. Would they have said NC State? Would they have said Villanova? No, they would have said they were the champions, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't have said they were the best teams. And so. The committee says they're trying to pick the best teams. Um, I actually think they're trying to pick the most deserving teams, but that's kind of splitting hairs. They're they're at least trying to pick something on an achievement metric. And so I just think – and and the thing that people forget is if you increase it to – especially to 12, you're going to give a team like an Alabama or Ohio State that maybe doesn't deserve to be in a four – you're giving them a mulligan, and the chances are good that they're going to win the thing. Right. As like an eight or a seven, and people go, how did that happen? They were lower seat. Because they're better than everybody else. They just had a bad day. But that bad day cost them their playoff berth. So, I believe me, being an Ohio State fan, when they get in, I'm thrilled. But in years they don't deserve to get in, I'm not going to stump for them to get in. And that's what I think the people who want different teams in – and don't want the same ending all the time are missing from the expansion talk. Because if you go to 12, 
you're not going to see, everyone says, oh, that'll get Coastal Carolina in, and that'll get UCF in. No, you're going to get one G5 at most, and you're going to get three or four SEC, mm-hmm. two or three Big Ten, Big Ten, and then one from the other conferences, and it's still going to be Alabama or Clemson or Georgia or Ohio State. Right. That's very true. <laughs> because the more, the more the good teams play, the more the strength comes to the top in football. You can have an off-shooting night in basketball, and you can be a St. Peter's, and beat a team that's better than you because they couldn't shoot the ball. But in football, 99 times out of 100, the stronger team is going to win, especially in a postseason format when you play your conference championship game. Then you play around one game. Maybe you get somebody hurt, and those teams don't have the depth that the Alabamas and the Ohio States and the Georgias have. So it just becomes a war of attrition, and in a war of attrition, the stronger rosters are going to win, win the thing. So, so that's why I want to leave it at four. Now, do I think that it's never expanding? I think it is. I could grudgingly live with eight. I don't want it going past eight. Actually, six might not be a bad number because you could give the one and two mm-hmm. a buy, give them a reward for finishing one or two, and then have the three play the six and the four play the five on a campus site. That would be outstanding to see a warm weather California or SEC team having to go to maybe Big Ten country mm-hmm. or somewhere where it's cold in December. I would love that for the postseason. I, I mean, would that's too. the one thing I like sometimes about these bowl games that are played around Christmas time. They might be played in warm weather locales, but maybe maybe Shreveport gets a freak snowstorm. It's like, oh, look, it's 35 degrees for the pool and weed eater bowl. <laughs> right. Now, I don't love the teams, but I just like watching games with snow on the field. So I'm going to sit and watch it. Absolutely. I, I, that's what that's what makes the fun into it. Yeah. You're you're a voter for the Davy O'Brien and Lombardi Award. Yes. Uh, I, I would love to know how that came about. Obviously, you were a, be- a sports writer, but um, and then who would be your favorites kind of entering this season? Do you see? Um, well, for the Davy O'Brien, I think you've got to look at Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bryce Young was the Heisman winner last year. C.J. Stroud's probably going to lead the best offense in college football this year. So, so certainly for the Davy O'Brien, those would be the two guys who would be the favorites. But you can't discount other guys who are going to be putting up big numbers. Potentially Caleb Williams at USC, Grayson McCall at Coastal Carolina, Sam Hartman at Wake Forest. I mean, there, there's a bunch of really good quarterbacks mm-hmm. playing in college football this year. But I think, I think Young and Stroud have to be your favorites. And then for the Lombardi... That used to be exclusively like an alignment award, but I think it was 2017. I think Bryce Love won it. It's, it's changed now to what the Lombardi, what the Rotary Lombardi Club deems to be the best player in terms of not only on-field achievement, but best overall in terms of embracing sportsmanship and collegiality and all that. So that one I think is a little bit harder to gauge. If I had to, if I had to have a pick, because it would be defense, I'd give it to Will Anderson from Alabama. That guy's a freak. Mm-hmm. The faster he gets out, the happier I am because my team won't have to face him. Because <laughs> right. I don't know if there are a lot of people who can block the guy. He had 31 tackles for loss last year. I know it's amazing. 31 <laughs> as a linebacker, and I still think that Cincinnati is having nightmares. Like, how are we going to block this guy? So, um, so, so that's how. The, that's kind of how I, I see the awards. Um, I was actually just asked on Twitter. One of the Davey O'Brien people just sent me a direct message on That's Twitter and said, would you want to be a voter? 
And I said, hmm, let me think about that for about five days. Yes, I'll be a voter. And then Lombardi, because I'm a Football Writers Association of America member, um, one of the leaders of the FWAA is also, I think, um, high up in the Rotary Lombardi Club. So I think they try to get a pool of FWAA people to be on the voting committee. So, so I was just kind of asked to do those two. And I like doing it. I take it seriously. I know there are people who vote for the Heisman who just kind of look at stats. And that's fine. I mean, most awards have become statistical anymore, mm -hmm. which is kind of sad. But I try to at least before turning my vote in, I try to look at some differences. If two candidates are close, I, I try to say, well, how is this guy in clutch situations? Or how was this guy against the best teams he faced? I don't want to just say automatically the guy with the best stats is the winner. So, so, so I, do, I do take it seriously, and I think it is an honor when you're asked to vote for something. I think you should take it seriously, and I mm -hmm. do enjoy doing it. I think it's amazing how you were just asked over Twitter. I think that that's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then I, I think we'll we'll conclude with this question. I mean, I myself, I'm a stadium traveler. It's in its infancy stages. Um, but based on your travels and all the places you've been as a beat writer and just as a fan in general, what are some of the best stadiums and, and environments you've been around in college football? Um, my favorite stadium, and this was as a fan, um, I went out to Colorado for the rematch of the Colorado-Michigan game from when uh, Cordell Stewart threw the long pass yep. in Michigan Stadium to pull the upset. Um, some friends of mine and I, they actually had a mutual friend who lived in Denver, so we were going to visit him. But we also, one of the guys worked for ABC. So he was able to get us sideline passes for the game and we stood there and he said, just look like you're with the chain crew. Like you're spotting, you're spotting for me. Like stand at the yard line where the chain marker is so that I'm up in the TV booth, I can see you. It was all BS, but it got us onto the field. So you, oh, we got to see Ralphie run out there, which is amazing that people need to see that before they die. Mm -hmm. And as the sun sets over those Rocky Mountains, kind of off in the distance, I challenge anyone to find a better view of that other than the sun setting on the Rose Bowl about the end of the third quarter because that's beautiful too. Um, but I think that the environments and atmospheres at Penn State are great. I don't think Penn State Stadium is anything spectacular, but those fans are loud and get into it. If you've never gone to a whiteout, you should try to go to one. Um, I think that... Um, Michigan State isn't bad when they're good. Mm -hmm. When they're not very good, it's like I don't think people care. I am impressed by the turnout at the big house, but I will say because of the way it is, and most of the time when you have a sunken field, the noise stays inside. I've never found the big house to be particularly loud. Um, there are moments when maybe they'll stand up, and it'll be pretty loud, but my gauge is if I have to yell at the person standing three inches from me to have them hear what I'm saying. And that's never happened at Michigan Stadium. So um, I would probably put Colorado at the top. Notre Dame, just from its history, is very cool. Um, anymore, I just sometimes, if we're traveling, whether by myself or just as a family, I will implore my wife i'll say i'll let you do whatever special thing you want to do on this trip i just want to see this stadium 
I went with my daughter. We did a national park trip in May. We went to Utah, and I we stayed in Salt Lake City. So I got to see Utah Stadium. We drove to Provo to see BYU, drove to Logan to see Utah State, and drove to Ogden to see Weaver State. Now, it's probably a little bit different, obviously, with people in it, but just I just like kind of seeing the stadiums and how they're configured, even when there aren't people in them, and the surrounding landscape and all that. So while I don't know that I'll ever get to all of the FBS stadiums or all of the FCS stadiums, I do think it's cool, and I do try to make a point. If I'm in a town I've never been to, and a stadium is close, I will try to drive there and try to get some pictures. Absolutely. I, I can speak to Colorado just from, I, I also have family, or my wife has family in Denver. So we've been to Boulder and climbing the flat irons there and seeing the stadium yeah. and everything. It is one of the most beautiful places in the country. And, and I agree with you. If, if, if you have an opportunity to do it, that's a place you got to go to. Well, and I, on my bucket list, um, I have three. I would love to go to an LSU game at night just because of how loud it is. Yep. I, I see it on TV, and I'm going, these people are just going crazy. And you'll see the camera shake. It's like, I want to be part of that. I'd love to go to a game at Army at Mikey Stadium mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I've heard that just the entrance and everything that surrounds that is just great. And then I want to see a Harvard-Yale game. I actually took my oldest kid – as a late graduation present, wanted to go to Boston. It's like, okay, I've never been to Boston before. I said, we're going to Harvard Stadium. So um, stopped in, took some pictures at Harvard Stadium. And um, I, I would like to see a Harvard-Yale game, though, because I love rivalries. I love late-in-the-year sort of stuff. Absolutely. I, I I love hearing all that just because, I mean, that's what I do. I go all over the place, go to different stadiums and different venues. So I always love hearing other people's perspective on those right. things. Right. But that's the end of our show. I really, really appreciate you, uh, Michael, joining uh, joining me today. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. And I uh, would, uh, would love to do it again if, uh, if, if you feel the inclination. Absolutely. Go ahead and uh, let the listeners know how they can follow you. Um, if they want to check me out on Twitter, they can follow me at CFFM Waxman, and that's W A C H S M A N. And I try to, once football season starts, I try to post some at least one thing daily, if not more than one. Usually statistics, usually a weird thing about a game that I saw, or maybe a little bit of a preview. Um, of, of, of something upcoming so um, it is it's fun like I said it's a labor of love and it gives me something to do on Saturdays kind of gets me out of housework right <laughs> well again I gotta thank all my listeners who tune in uh, to every episode thank you guys so much and I appreciate you guys and everybody have a good night God bless <laughs>